It's not surprising that every time there's a very emotive, very difficult to handle mass shooting, whether it be in this country or in the U.S., as we saw last week, uh, that politicians are motivated to try to be seen to be doing something about it. That's why we end up with gun legislation from this government. Uh, just about every time there is one of these particularly horrific mass shootings. Uh, we saw it again today with this uh, handgun freeze that's coming in uh, if this bill passes, uh, which presumably it will at some point, uh, as well as other new measures brought in, some that were already sort of already in existence, according to the person I spoke to, Noah Schwartz, who's a firearms policy expert in the last half hour, um, as well as uh, this buyback program they've announced for assault weapons that were banned last time around. Now, they banned those assault weapons after another uh, particularly awful mass shooting, the 2020 murder of 22 people in Nova Scotia, uh, the deadliest in modern Canadian history. Uh, the Liberal government then announced a ban on ownership of many semi-automatic assault-style rifles and said again it would bring back in that, bring in a mandatory buyback program for those weapons, which Noah Schwartz says will cost a whole lot of money. And it's not quite clear just what effect it'll have on on public safety, really. We don't really know. Uh, not much, he thought. Um and, and that's, that's kind of the problem with these with these announcements is that they come at times where people are really wound up and emotive about this issue. And it feels like it, it lends itself to making bad policy because you're acting on emotion instead of acting on good policy or good common sense. Um, and that's and that's troublesome because because you feel the same way. You're like, oh, gun legislation, isn't that a good idea? Maybe we'll make our streets safer. And then you start to look between the lines and think, is that really the problem here? Is it really legal owners of handguns in this problem that are the pro that in this country that are the issue or is it those illegal handguns coming across the border from the u.s that are really the problem now there is money to fight that as well but it's not the headline notice it's not the headline tonight the headline is the handgun freeze is that good public policy who knows it also got me thinking today about um, the inquiry into that mass shooting in Nova Scotia back in 2020, because there's been a huge backlash against it from families of some of the victims of that day. Uh, really, it's about many things, but recently it's about accommodations granted to key RCMP officers, Staff Sergeant Brian Rahill. Uh, he was testifying today via Zoom behind closed doors with a recording of those proceedings not being released until a later date. We don't know when. Uh, he was in charge of the initial response when that shooting began, uh, but the public has been barred from listening. Ray Hill has also been exempted from facing cross-examination -exam by lawyers representing relatives of the 22 people killed uh, back on April 18th and 19th. Uh, that decision, as well as delays, overall frustration last week, um, prompted most of the families to boycott the proceedings, and some even staged a protest outside the hearings in Truro, Nova Scotia. Nobody's accountable for anything. Nobody did anything. Nobody knows what went on. It's the people we know that got murdered. Plain and simple, you know. Got to cut the BS and, and find the answers. Essentially, we fought for this two years ago, almost. Uh, we did not fight for a review. We were fighting for an inquiry. And pretty much what we got was a review. So why is there so much anger over this inquiry that was really meant to be about transparency because they will not lay blame at the end of this. This is about transparency, figuring out what went wrong to make sure that it does, does not happen again. Well, joining me now is Adam Rogers. He's a Nova Scotia lawyer who is following the inquiry closely. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for your time. I'm glad to be here, Ben. Yeah. For listeners who haven't been paying rapt attention to, to the proceedings, um, who is due up early this week and why is their testimony so crucial? Well, even if they were paying close attention, they wouldn't really be able to see who's testifying because today and tomorrow, 
there are two staff sergeants testifying, but they're not testifying live on video. They're testifying in a pre-taped situation, and the video will be posted later to the Mass Casualty Commission website at some unknown date. So today it's Staff Sergeant Brian Rahill, and tomorrow it's Staff Sergeant Andy O'Brien who are uh, giving their, uh, I call it testimony, I guess. It seems like more of an interview, but that's uh, one of the issues I guess we can talk about. Uh, who are they, and, and why are they? Why is their testimony so crucial here? So, uh, Staff Sergeant Ray Hill was the uh, incident uh, commander. She, he, he was in charge of things early on in the uh, scenario of the mass shooting. So, uh, his he made some command decisions uh, on uh, you know containment efforts, placement of uh, resources in different spots. So, he'll uh, be talking about those decisions. And then uh, Staff Sergeant O'Brien was uh, of the he was sort of helping out throughout the night as well, uh, doing some uh, supervision. Um, this seems like it's unusual that they're not being, uh, that their testimony is not quote unquote public. Uh, I mean, it will be eventually, but they're essentially testifying behind closed doors. Yeah, they are. And so the lawyers are there for all of the participants. The media is present, but nobody's allowed to report on it. And we, uh, curiously, we don't know when the commission is going to post the testimony, but Whenever they do, it's inevitable uh, that people, uh, fewer people are going to watch it. It's like, you know, if you know the outcome of a hockey game, you're not going to watch the whole thing. You might watch the replay. So people will read articles and such about these two officers' testimony. But this is part of the trauma-informed mandate uh, that the commission has adopted. And the National Police Federation and the Federal Department of Justice has uh, requested, have requested these accommodations for these particular witnesses. And the commission granted it so that they wouldn't have to testify live in front of everybody and be subject to cross-examination. So it's unusual, yes, and many people are questioning uh, whether it was the appropriate decision. Are these concerns legitimate in your eyes? They seem quite legitimate. Uh, We've had the National Police Federation and the Federal Department of Justice request accommodations for other officers, which were rejected, and then the officers have testified uh, in including last week, uh, Staff Sergeant Briars uh, testified and did fine. Uh, Staff Sergeant, um, another Staff Sergeant testified last week, um, seemed both able to uh, compose themselves and get through it without uh, any real difficulty. So it just seems disingenuous on the part of the uh, Police Federation to be requesting these accommodations, um, but there they are. It, it seems odd they'd be requesting them for senior officers if it wasn't granted for more junior officers. Yeah, and another peculiar part of that, Ben, was that when they were originally making these requests, the Police Federation, one of the participants' lawyers mentioned, well, the trauma you face as a frontline officer is markedly different than what you would face as a supervisor removed from the scene. Mm -hmm. And the Police Federation and the Department of Justice took offense to that, which I, I thought was a little manufactured at the time. But uh, that's they. Their position is that those traumas are equal in nature and should both uh, be, you know, the subject of accommodations. What's the importance of then? Of, would it be to see these officers at least um, testify, quote unquote, in in the same circumstances as other officers have been uh, have been asked or been at least uh, required to testify in? Many of the questions the families and the public have are relating to these. Uh, command decisions, what was known, what resources were used and available. And 
those seem to be where many of the mistakes were made. So for those officers in particular to not face the public and not subject themselves to this, I think really bothers people. I think it bothers them uh, from a, a moral perspective. You know, this is a public inquiry. And so there's legal elements to it, but much of this is to show the public what happened to demonstrate this and allow us in a way to sort of collectively process everything that took place over those, you know, 13 terrible hours here in Nova Scotia. And so by not testifying they're they're shortcutting that process or undercutting it. I guess there's been a lot of anger from the families uh, already from the families of the victims. Big time. Uh, in fact, Today and tomorrow will represent days three and four of a boycott for many of the family members and their counsel. Some of the lawyers uh, on instructions from their clients have boycotted the last few days of proceedings because of these accommodation requests that were granted. So that's a, it's a pretty dramatic uh, development. I can't think of another inquiry setting where that's taken place. So uh, for that to happen has, uh, speaks volumes. Just to get down to the specifics here, what the families would like to be able to do, I would imagine, is have their lawyers in real time, in public, uh, cross-examine some of this testimony. It's uh, it's kind of bizarre from uh, the perspective of a lawyer to have to justify cross-examination. I mean, for anybody that's watched television or movie where there's a courtroom scene will appreciate that that's really when you dig into things. You know, it's easy for people to prepare to speak and have the questions fed to them on direct examination. But when they have questions they're not expecting or in a certain order, or they just, somebody keeps digging, well, then they might say something they didn't want to say or reveal something, some truth that they didn't want to. So uh, this, this very basic tenant of civil litigation and criminal law is missing here. And, uh, you know, I know the commission views it as part of their trauma-informed mandate, but the public doesn't see it that way, and the families are very upset. The the questions, I guess, the specifics here, and you mentioned it in terms of command, were why was there no public alert released? How much did they know about what was happening? Uh, why was why were areas not contained faster and so on? Is that what these two officers were expected to speak to? We we're talking about some of this, and one of so some of this is a technological issue, and some of the junior officers were familiar with this mapping program that the RCMP uh, was able to access but senior members that were making decisions uh, weren't. So part of the question is the hierarchical structure. What was known by those senior officers that were making decisions? And how does that flow of information uh, operate? Uh, didn't seem to operate very well on, on this occasion. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a big part of uh, what their testimony was going to involve. And just, just how they directed things and uh, you know, the, the training that went into dealing with uh, an active shooter situation. I'm speaking with Adam Rogers. He's a Nova Scotia lawyer who's been following the inquiry into the mass shooting in Nova Scotia very closely, the 2020 mass shooting, of course, uh, the deadliest in modern Canadian history. Specifically, we're talking today about a decision the inquiry has made to allow two uh, officers who were in command uh, that, those, that night you know, over those 13 hours uh, to testify essentially behind closed doors. Their testimony will not be made public uh, until an unspecified date. There is some impact as well on the cross-examination and the families in Nova 
Scotia angry. Our families are the victims angry about the fact that somehow uh, they feel that there's been a different set of rules or standards applied uh, for these officers, although the National Police Association has asked for it and the inquiry is trying to go forward with a trauma-based approach to this inquiry. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about the overall inquiry so far, where we're at now, and just how uh, the loss of confidence from families of the victims might impact uh, what we end up seeing at the end of this and what impact it'll have on faith faith and trust within the RCMP. This whole inquiry was meant to rebuild that. Uh, we'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Adam Rogers. He's a Nova Scotia law- lawyer who's been following the inquiry into that horrific mass shooting uh, in April of 2020 very closely. Uh, importantly, uh, over today and tomorrow is the testimony of two commanding officers at the time and a decision by the inquiry to allow those officers to testify essentially behind closed doors. Uh, There are people in the room, but we will not be seeing that testimony. Uh, There is a different standard for the cross-examination as well by the lawyers representing the families of the victims. Uh, Adam, you pointed out uh, recently in a blog of yours that this has been an issue overall with the inquiry, that that somehow the public, or at least the most important members of the public, the families of the victims, seem to have lost faith uh, in this and have not been participating the way they had hoped to. I thought the families were really marginalized from the very beginning. And it's important because, you know, everybody's participating. We have the, you know, inquiry council, the lawyers for them that sort of, you know, do some of the the questioning of witnesses and presentation of of evidence. But then we have lawyers for the various government agencies and then the families. Well, those families are really a proxy for us as the public because they get to ask the questions we would want to have asked. And they've been marginalized from the beginning. They weren't able to make opening statements. Uh, I was recently involved in the Desmond Fatality Inquiry. And in that inquiry, we were able to make opening statements. So, you know, where every party stood and what the issues were going to be. We were allowed to cross-examine every witness that came forward. And there were there were more there was more emphasis on the testimony of witnesses uh, overall. So, you know, these families are, uh, you know, they're being pushed aside. They're being forced to submit their questions in advance for cross-examination or else, you know, gather together and have one lawyer represent everybody for cross-examination. All very unusual uh, elements. And, and so the families are yeah, very disappointed with the procedures thus far. I mean, I've covered inquiries in the past, whether it be the Air India inquiry, and they've always been, uh, while trying to figure out what went wrong, clearly, uh, and without apportioning blame as well, uh, but also trying to get as tra- trying to come to the answers as transparently as possible. They've always been quite victim uh, or family of victim centric. Uh, this one feels like it's not. Yeah, very much uh, focused on the RCMP and their efforts to protect themselves. I mean, they have a con- they're a contract policing force here in Nova Scotia. They have a contract until 2032, but there's a two year uh, window on that where they could be. Uh, you know, they could be told, no, you're not going to be policing Nova Scotia any further on two years notice. So they have a lot at stake here. And then there's also a class action lawsuit filed by uh, victims families as well. So the RCMP seem to be taking things from a very protective approach in that respect, both on the civil litigation side. And I think they're also hoping that people lose interest and don't pay attention and they'll maintain their contract, a very valuable contract to uh, provide policing in Nova Scotia. Because if it goes wrong here in Nova Scotia, that could have a reverberating effect across the country. You just, you never know. And I'm sure they're concerned. But it would seem to be self-defeating to try to protect that one contract at the expense of appearing transparent about the worst mass shooting in modern Canadian history and the response. You think the most important thing here is to figure out what went wrong and make sure it never happens again. I agree hundred percent. And, you know, we, we've seen some of this throughout 
the uh, testimony so far, we're on, we've had 27 days of proceedings, and some of those have been with witnesses. And some witnesses have come up and said, well, you know, I, I, you know, it was too busy and I didn't hear that on the radio and I feel terrible. Or I did this and I, I feel terrible and have admitted their mistakes or, you know, said, well, we were overwhelmed and we didn't know exactly what we were facing. And, and people can accept that if you're open and upfront about it, honest about it and reflective about it. But other officers have gone on the stand, including two officers that mistakenly shot at a fire hall where which was being used as a you know a center for for gathering for the evacuees and they wouldn't have done anything differently so when you have questions you know comments like that uh, it doesn't breed confidence at all in the force from the public's perspective and I, I think it's a mistake on their part not to be more forthcoming with this i think people would be prepared to forgive a lot of things in this very unusual circumstance if they had taken a different approach yeah, I agree. I, th- I think people understand just how chaotic and unusual this particular her- awful incident was and are probably in a situation to at least just want to understand what happened. Uh, if you don't have the confidence of the families, then of the families of the victims, and if they come out and speak out against this report when it's released uh, later this year, I gather, or this will wrap up later this year, mm-hmm. that could that could have a pretty dire impact on on the overall process of the families of the victims don't support the conclusions. It's going to be uh, it's going to be very difficult because this is a very expensive uh, commission inquiry as well. So a lot of money, millions of dollars have been spent on this, and there's sort of three elements to an inquiry like this. There's the public uh, element that gets an inquiry started in the first place, and that had some, had its own difficulties here. Then there's the legal process of the inquiry, but then there's what happens after the report comes out, and then it's back to the public again. Because without public acceptance of the report, or if you know if the public doesn't find it persuasive or insightful, then there's going to be no public pressure or momentum to bring those changes or those recommendations uh, to bear. And uh, so, you know, a lot depends. So, in other words, if it's poorly done, then nothing will change, and the whole thing will be for nothing. And uh, so. I hopefully hopefully we don't face that kind of scenario. We've seen some adjustments on the part of the commissioners uh, throughout this inquiry, and hopefully they'll make further adjustments in reaction to this criticism. So what's left to be learned here? I, I, I mean, this is a very broad question, but what have we sort of learned about this? Have we learned much about the specifics of that night? And is there still a lot left to be found out? We've learned about the specifics of that night. There's still some uh, questions about that, but we've learned a great deal about what took place over the course of the 13 hours. We've learned a great deal about the emergency alert system and how that does and should work, uh, how it could work better. What we haven't really gotten into yet is the killer's motivations and some of the, and also so related to that, the criminal intelligence um, structure uh, capabilities here in Nova Scotia. There's interagency cooperation, or there's supposed to be on criminal intelligence matters. There was a great deal that could have been or should have been known about this individual beforehand and so we don't we haven't gotten into the details of how much was known to criminal intelligence services here uh, about the killer well adam rogers thank you so much for your insight on this glad to do it ben anytime